Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, he's going to be looking at Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 through 30, and Jacob's marriages to Leah and Rachel. He'll discuss those interesting details about the appearance of Leah and Rachel, and he'll also address the selling of daughters and if this was a common practice. Another apparent problem in the text that he'll deal with is the issue of polygamy. And towards the end, he'll also give some thoughts on alcohol consumption based on this and other passages. We want to thank you so much for listening. And now here's James Jordan discussing Jacob's marriages to Leah and Rachel. Last time, we started chapter 29, when Jacob gets to the well and, as we said, assists in helping to open the well, probably, meets Rachel. One thing that I have kind of discovered this past week, and by way of review we can start here, chapter 29, verse 1, says, And Jacob lifted up his feet and went to the land of the sons of the east. Remember, I told you last time that lifted up his feet is an expression that's not found anywhere else in the Bible. It could say he arose or something else, but this is an odd expression, and all the commentators say, why is it here this way? Does it mean that he ran? Does it mean that he moved swiftly? I suggested possibly that we're supposed to understand that he was kneeling in the preceding phrases. Another possibility that I think is probably the most likely one is to remember that feet in the Bible is a euphemism for the organs of marriage and Jacob is going off to get married. That may account for this expression here. You could paraphrase it and say, Jacob headed off to get married and went to the land of the sons of the east. Perhaps that's the nuance it would have had originally that covering the feet and uncovering the feet and all those things are expressions. Particularly, uncovering the feet is an expression for sexual relations, as Ruth and other passages point to that. So, perhaps that's what this means here. This is a way of saying he headed off to get married, as he'd been commanded to do. Don't know for sure, it's still an odd expression, but given the symbolic meaning of the term, perhaps that's why it's written this way. At any rate, the ensuing passage is full of marital imagery. You've got the well, you've got the stone that seals up the well, Jacob opens it up and gives water to Rachel, and all of that is a very vague kind of anticipation of his marriage to her, she being the well. And we looked at the passage last week, they come to the well, there's three flocks there, and then there's a fourth when Rachel arrives, and we looked at the number four and its meaning, and there's kind of a little world there. Jacob either rolls the stone away himself because he's powerful like Samson or he just helps the other guys do it and he chats with Rachel and he tells her who he is and Laban comes out to meet him and kisses him and embraces him and verse 14 and Laban said to him without a doubt you are my bone and my flesh and that's probably the end of that paragraph especially if beginning with the idea of Feet and ending with bone and flesh would give somewhat of an inclusio to that paragraph if that's where it ends. Verse 1 to 14a. Without doubt, you're bone and flesh. That means you're my brother. Well, now Laban is remembering back 
97 years earlier when people came from Abraham's family and brought 10 camels loads of gifts and stuff. And I'm sure he's thinking that gifts are going to come soon and nothing happens. Then we start the next section. He stayed with him a moon of days. He stayed with him a month of days. And I think this section probably ends in verse 30 at the end when it says, And he served him yet another seven years. That seems to be the paragraph. And we looked last time at what likely happened during this month. Laban's initially real happy to see Jacob. But during the month, no camels show up. No gifts show up. And he noticed that Jacob really likes Rachel. And, of course, Jacob is his nephew. So then he acts to reduce Jacob into a position of essentially a slave. And we talked about this at length last time. Laban said to Jacob, Are you really my brother? Should you be serving me for nothing? Tell me what will your wages be, knowing what's likely to happen. In other words, as a member of the family and of the household, Jacob's been living there. He's been eating out of the fridge. He's been helping out. He's been like one of Laban's sons. He is 77 years old. Now, Laban essentially rejects the ties of kinship here, at least at a certain level, and says, no, no, you need to work for money. There's nothing generous here, as we see from the ensuing narrative. And Jacob can't do anything about it. He has no place to go. That's what Laban has figured out after a month. By now, Laban has heard all the stories. He knows about Jacob getting the birthright from Esau, which he refers to in a few verses here, as we'll see. And he knows that Jacob can't go home because Esau's waiting for him. And he knows that Jacob loves Rachel. And he knows that Jacob was commanded by his father and mother to marry one of Laban's daughters. So if Jacob is going to obey, he has to marry one of Laban's daughters. And he can't go home. And so he's stuck. And Laban can essentially put any conditions on him he wants. And all Jacob could do is say, well, I'm not going to obey my parents. I'm just going to go off down to Egypt and live the rest of my life and not have anything to do with any of this anymore. That's the situation he's in. He's basically stuck. So now we come to verses 16 to 30. And we'll read it. And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was fair of form and fair to look at. Leah means cow, and Rachel means you. E-W-E, female sheep. So, Levon had two daughters. The name of the elder was cow, and the name of the other was you. And cow had cow eyes. And they were delicate or pretty. doesn't say really that they were weak or bad. But Rachel... Ewe lamb was fair form and fair to look at. Yaakov fell in love with Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Levon said, my giving her to you is better than my giving her to another man. Stay with me. And Yaakov served seven years for Rachel. And they were in his eyes as but a few days. Anybody recognize that phrase? A few days? This is where, if we read these chapters all together at once and you heard them every year in the synagogue as it went through in the annual readings, you'd probably pick it up. Just two chapters ago, Rebecca said, Go and stay with Laban, my brother, for a few days. And now, 
Seven years seems like a few days. Exactly the same Hebrew expression. Seven years for Rachel, and yet they were in his eyes as a few days because of his love for her. And Yaakov said to Levan, Come now, give me my wife. For my days of labor have been fulfilled, and let me come into her. And Levan gathered all the people of the place together, and he made a drinking feast. And in the evening he took Leah's daughter and brought her to him. And he came into her. And Levan gave her Zilpah his maid, for Leah's daughter, as a maid. And in the morning, look, she was Leah. And he said to Levan, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? Levon said, such is not done in our place, giving away the younger before the firstborn. Oh, ho, ho. Looks as if Laban has heard the stories, all right. We don't do this kind of thing over here, switching younger for older. Maybe you do that stuff back home, not here. Just fill out the bridal week for this one, and we shall give you that one also. For the service which you will serve me for yet another seven years. And Yaakov did so. He fulfilled the bridal week for this one. And then he gave him Rachel, his daughter, as a wife. And Levan also gave Rachel, his daughter, Bilhah, for her as a maid. And he came into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel also more than Leah. And he served him for yet another seven years. What we want to do is kind of walk through this and look at the details and then make some comments on the passages as a whole. I mentioned that Leah, or Leah, we'll just go ahead and say it in English now. Leah, we don't know exactly what this means. If you look at the older commentators, you see a variety of guesses, but Semitic studies have uncovered very similar words, same word or variants that are way too close, meaning cow or wild cow in Akkadian and Arabic and other languages. So in line with other Semitic languages, her name probably means cow. Now, if you named your daughter cow nowadays, that would be an insult, but it wasn't back then. Pretty little cow. A little heifer. Heifer is probably what I should have put here instead of cow. Well, naming your daughter heifer probably you wouldn't be thankful for that either in our society. But back then, calling your daughter she-goat or heifer, they were close to these animals and they thought the animals were pretty and a little goat is pretty and a little lamb is pretty and a little cow is pretty. And cows have nice, big, wet, pretty eyes. And Leah's, Leah's eyes are pretty. And so there's a connection here. At any rate, to call the older sister a heifer and the younger sister a ewe has a certain symmetry to it. The older one is a female cow and the younger one is a female sheep. So that makes a lot of sense. And the recent commentators, the ones that even take the time to discuss what the words mean, have definitely come down in favor of this. Of course, if we dig something up out of the ancient world that changes things, 200 years from now, that'll change. But right now, that makes a lot of sense. Rachel being a ewe, well, I've mentioned before, and we'll see it again, got lots of flocks of sheep showing up in this passage. And for Rachel to be the mother of at least two of the kids in the family ties into this flock theme. And since Leah apparently has a bovine name as well, that's herds and not flocks, but there's a connection. Jacob's children are going to be his flock, and these women are going to be his lady sheep. Leah's eyes. Some of the older translations have that they were weak or that they were bad, but all the commentators point out that this word only means bad or weak in contexts where other words say the same thing. And that 
the vast majority of the time, the word implies not weakness, but softness or delicacy or prettiness. And in this context, it doesn't say her eyes were weak and watery or weak and she was half blind or something. There's nothing to confirm that way of reading it and the normal way of reading it is that her eyes were pretty. She had pretty soft eyes. And Rachel, and I have to apologize, I meant to look and see if this is an adversative or just the word and, and I think it is. I don't think there's any great contrast here. It's just saying that they both had nice qualities. I'll have to check on that, though. Leah's eyes were pretty, and Rachel was fair of form and fair to look at. So, it's interesting that there's an opposition here. Leah looks out with good eyes. One looks back at Rachel, and she's pretty to look at. In other words, these are almost opposite things here. Leah's eyes are her feature. Rachel's good features are what others see when they look at her. Fair of form and fair to look at. Of course, in our society, that would mean that she was skinny like a movie star. But who knows what it meant back then. Maybe they liked them more Rubenesque. You can't jump to conclusions as to what Rachel looked like or Leah. They must have been roughly the same size because in the wedding ceremony, Leah could be passed off as Rachel. If she was a head taller, it wouldn't have worked. So, it's an interesting phrase here. I don't know exactly how to work it all out. In the ensuing narrative, it does seem that Leah sees things more clearly than Rachel does. When she starts having children, she ascribes praise to God. And Rachel, on the other hand, seems more active and crafty, especially when she steals the gods and she goes to Jacob and demands children and she steals the gods. She seems to be a little bit more like Rebecca in being very active, and she's like Rebecca in some other ways as well, in that she deceives her father, like Rebecca deceived Isaac, and in that she is barren for a while, as Rebecca was. So Rachel is to be compared with Rebecca. Rebecca was said to be beautiful. I forget exactly where the verses are on that, but it's back in chapter 24, and one could look. The maiden was exceedingly beautiful to look at, Chapter 24, verse 16. She was beautiful to look at. Rachel was fair of form and fair to look at. So, definite comparison to Rebecca here. But Leah has good qualities too. They both have good qualities. Guess what you want is somebody has both pretty eyes and is also pretty to look at. Put them together. Well, that's just setting us up for things. Jacob fell in love with Rachel. Nice paraphrase. Jacob loved Rachel, and all he's done is give the verb extra strength. He fell in love with Rachel entirely correct. The younger son falls for the younger daughter. And he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Jacob is actually the one who makes the offer here. So I have talked about this in such a way that Laban was taking advantage of Jacob, which he does. And he still is even here, but Jacob makes the initial offer. I think Jacob's been around Laban long enough to know that he's going to have to give Laban a lot of money for anything he wants from Laban. They both had a month to size each other up. Now this is the bride price, or the mohar. 
And I've got here, this is money paid to the father or brother, but for the woman to have is insurance money. Often it consists of jewelry and other precious things that the woman keeps for a rainy day in case the husband dies or abandons her. It's not a price paid for the girl to her family. You don't sell girls, at least in Israel culture. But Laban is going to use it all for himself and thus steal it from Leah and Rachel. That's what he does. But that's not what he's supposed to do. Uh-huh. Yep. That's part of why Rachel faces God. There's an eye for eye business in this passage, and that's the four eye part, <laughs> which we will get to. But sometimes you see pictures of women in India or some of these other cultures that still preserve customs that were common in the ancient world, and they've just got loads of jewelry on their arms, things like that. Well, that's what this is. They keep it with them at all times so nobody can steal it. And that's their insurance. If things go bad, they can sell off some of those gold rings and get by. But you negotiate that with the father and the brother. And we've discussed this before, but it's always good to remind yourself of it because sometimes people have the idea that people were selling their daughter. And it's true that the arrangement is made with father and brother. If Rachel hadn't wanted to marry Jacob, she could have protested. Maybe Laban was such a tyrant that he would have forced her into his arms anyway, but that didn't happen. And so we don't really need to try to figure out what might have happened along those lines. What is important is that this is money that's actually for Rachel, or some of it is anyway, and it's stolen from her eventually. Now Deuteronomy 22.29 sets the maximum mohar at 50 shekels. You really are not supposed to ask more than that, and I guess if a father demanded 200 shekels or something, he could go to court. At least that's what it seems to me. And from my intense study of the ancient world, I found in the old Babylonian laws, we read that day laborers received one and a half shekels a month. Actually, I didn't find it, of course. One of the commentators pointed it out. But one and a half shekels a month, that's 18 shekels a year, Seven years at this rate comes to 126 shekels. But, got to remember that during these seven years, Jacob's room and board and everything else is being taken care of by Laban too. Or he's eating food out of Laban's sheep dummies, staying in a tent that Laban has provided for him and all the rest. So some of that money is going for his normal expenses. And if you wanted to calculate it out, who knows? But maybe it comes out to about 50 shekels worth Rachel. We're not given the details. That's not important. What is important is the seven years. It's also interesting that in the law, a person can be enslaved for six years and has to be set free in the seventh. But Jacob is going to work all seven years for Rachel and won't get to a Sabbath until the eighth year. Then he has to do it again. Then at the end, he works six years and goes free in the seventh. That's what's important about this passage. Seven more years for Rachel, six years, and then the exodus out of there is in the seventh year. And so there's an indefinite anticipation of the slavery laws. When Jacob leaves, he leaves at the end of six years of service. But that's off in the future. Well, it's interesting. You might think, well, gee, Laban might say, hey, you're my nephew. Gee, seven years, that's an awful long time. How about seven months? No big problem here. No, no, no. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, better to give her to you than to another man, so stay here. 
He doesn't volunteer any information about some custom where the altar has to be married off first. Which is nonsense anyway. And you never find that anywhere else. The older girl has to be married off first. This is just Laban's way of sticking it to Jacob when it finally comes up around. He served seven years for Rachel. They were in his eyes a few days. I've mentioned both of those factors again. There's a sense in which Rebecca's command is fulfilled, at least initially. He's only there a few days, even though it's also seven years. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my labor days have been fulfilled, and let me come into her. Commentators point out that there's no word please here. That's not a petition. He doesn't say nigh, which is one of the words for please. He doesn't say, okay, I've done this now, please make do. He just comes and presents the contract needs to be fulfilled. It's not necessarily rude. And, of course, the other part of that is, that's the way it's written here. Conversation may have been much more extended. But what it's boiled down to is a simple statement. I've done my work. I've earned the money. Give me my wife. Now, what's important here is he doesn't say, give me your daughter, Rachel. She's already his wife, in a sense, because betrothal in the Bible is everything but sex, marriage. Not so much like what we think of as an engagement today. People get engaged, and that's kind of a public statement that they intend to get married, but sometimes they break it off. In the Bible, a betrothal is more than that. There's already been a contract signed. There's already been some gifts exchanged. And if a betrothed girl commits adultery, she's put to death the same way a married woman who commits adultery is put to death. That's why when Joseph found Mary pregnant under the law, he could have had her put to death. He chose not to because that's just the maximum penalty. It's not required. But under the law, betrothal is a marriage in everything except sex. So that's quite the statement here. We've been pretty much married for some time now. Now I want to come into her, and that's pretty frank. That's the way people spoke in the ancient world. And so that's what he intends to do, consummate the marriage. Paraphrase it. Give me my wife for my days of labor been fulfilled so that I can consummate my marriage with her. That's what this would mean. That's how we would say it. They use a quite straightforward way of speaking. Verse 22. It's all going to happen now. Laban gathered all the people of the place together and made a drinking feast. The word feast here... Not all the Bibles are going to translate a drinking feast, but it is correct. The word for feast here comes from the word that means drinking. And it's used for big feasts in the Bible. Not always is alcohol mentioned in connection with the feast, but it's always there by implication. Somebody has a great big feast, they're going to have wine in the ancient world. And this word implies wine, and it's very important. It's important in the context of Genesis because there's a comparison here implied to both Noah and Lot, and it's important just in terms of the drama here. Laban intends to get Jacob liquored up to the point where he can pull this off. Jacob is totally in possession of his faculties. It's not going to work. So Laban intends to blur Jacob's ability to discern. 
We'll have to talk about that a little bit. And, and it's too bad we have to, but we do. Verse 23. In the evening, at night, he took Leah's daughter and brought her to him and he came into her. Well, what's happening here? Well, scenario-wise, you just kind of have to fill it in. Where's Rachel? Is she tied up and gagged in a tent somewhere, <laughs> struggling and screaming to get loose? Or is she in on this, knowing that there's nothing she can do about it? Are she and Leah good pals and friends? Or are they enemies? Is there a lot of love and understanding between the two of them in this situation? Or a lot of hostility? We don't really know, and the Bible does not give us information to fill it out. There's a certain amount of rivalry in having children, but even there, it's not directly personal. They don't seem to be enemies and hating each other the way, you know, sisters might. Just don't know. Don't know where Rachel is. She's out of the picture, whether she's been persuaded to it or whether she's been dragged off a day's journey from the whole situation. Leah must have known what was going on. Why'd she go along with it? Secretly, she wants to marry Jacob. She's a bad person. She submits to her father. Don't know. Don't know why she went along with it. Had no choice. You could imagine several possibilities. One thing I think we can know is that Jacob's disdain for her later on is connected to the fact that she did this. But how we would evaluate her guilt is something that we're not given the information to know. We're just told what is important for the passage. It's true. We know that brides were veiled. We know that when Rebecca showed up to Isaac, she veiled her face. Now, we think of a veil as a very thin, gauzy thing that you can see through with 90% efficiency. But that's not what veils were like in the ancient world. Veils covered your face up. And in Genesis 28 when Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, she covers herself with a veil, and Judah has relations with her, her face is covered up. So this means that her face was covered up by being veiled. Maybe her eyes were visible, but even there, the eyes might have given Leah away. So we just have to remember that at night it's dark, and if you've ever been camping and sat around a campfire and then gone out away from it, you know how dark it gets. So that's essentially what's happening here. It's dark. If there's no moon, it's real dark. You don't have any street lights or anything. So it's dark. We're in the tent. Jacob is nice and relaxed from drinking wine. He's full of food and he's ready for all this. It's not hard to see how it can happen, provided Leah keeps her mouth shut and doesn't say anything where he might recognize her voice. So... There you are. I mean, just in terms of thinking up a scenario, that's, I think, what we're expected to know. But we're not given loads of those details. We just have to kind of fill them in. Laban also gave Zilpah his maid for Leah his daughter as a maid. So that sets us up for later things. And the, the same statements made about Rachel a few verses later that the maid is given and... If there's more to be said about that, I don't know what it is. But it tells us Laban is giving him something. And maybe that's the extent of everything he intends to give him. Here, have another person to be responsible for <laughs> and take care of on top of everything else you've got to do. Now, there's a little pun in verse 25 that you might not pick up. Some of the commentators point out, and I'm not sure how strong this is. 
And in the morning, behold, she was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? Deceived is the word Rema, And Laban the Aramean is Arami. In Hebrew, it doesn't say Aramean. That's English. It says Arami. And some of the commentators have said Laban the Aramean is Laban the deceiver. Laban Arami is Laban Rema. And perhaps there's an intended pun there. I'm thinking also the statement that in the confession of sin that's prescribed in Deuteronomy, it says you're supposed to say, my father was a wandering Aramean. If you were to plug that in, my father was a deceiver, it would make some interesting connections. All of Israel is descended from Laban. They're all descended from Rachel and Leah. Well, the tribes from the maidservants aren't, but the maidservants originally belonged to Laban. So all these people can trace back to Laban in some sense. My father was a wandering Aramean. Laban is our father, like Adam is. We need a better father. At any rate, he says, didn't I serve you for Rachel all these years? Well, yeah. Now, that was the contract. And the contract was broken. Laban has got his quick reply. He's had seven years to think it up. Such is not done in our place, giving away the younger before the firstborn. Before it was the younger and the elder. Now it's younger and firstborn. Firstborn is a word usually used for the male. Here, Laban sticks it in to say, Hey, you told me about what you did with Esau. We don't do that over here. Firstborn stays firstborn. Secondborn stays secondborn over here. We don't switch places over here. So he's trying to say something there, a reference there. And then he just says, fill out the bridal week for this one, and we shall give you that one also. Commentators worry around about we shall give, and then they have various explanations, but the one that makes the most sense is, remember, brothers are always involved in these negotiations. When Eliezer negotiated for Rebekah, He spoke primarily to Rebekah's brother Laban, although her father Bethuel was on the scene. Well, Laban's got other sons. We know that from later on. So the we shall give you probably refers to Laban and his sons and isn't really a problem. And he's supposed to work another seven years. Now, what he doesn't say is, work for seven more years and then I'll give you Rachel. He says... Fulfill the week, the marriage week, the honeymoon week, and it's one week. Then you can marry Rachel, and after that, work seven more years. Now, that's a tacit admission that Jacob's complaint is legitimate. doesn't say, hey, didn't you understand? I didn't actually say I would give you Rachel, verse 19. I said my giving her to you is better than my giving her to another man. I don't remember saying Rachel, Jacob. Maybe you said Rachel. Maybe you understood Rachel. Maybe you asked about Rachel. But I don't remember saying Rachel, Jacob. I just said her. And now you've got her. You want Rachel too? Work another seven years. Could have said that, I guess. But Jacob might have just pulled out a sword and cut his guts out for him if he had. So he doesn't. And I think he's also admitting that Jacob has a case here. (laughs) Well, after all, we really were talking about Rachel, but hey, I didn't have any choice about this. I had to let you have Leah first, but now you can marry Rachel. 
there's also the fact that legally speaking, he is married to Rachel. This is probably the only case of involuntary bigamy in the history of the world, but that's what it is. So I think that the arrangement here that Laban suggests, which again, he's had a long time to think how he's going to handle this, is one that admits that Jacob has a case, admits that he's been deceptive, but hey, just sleep with Leah every night for a week and then you can have Rachel and work seven more years for her. Again, Jacob doesn't really have any choice because he loves Rachel. But this is not going to be a pleasant seven years and it's not going to go by like a few days. Seven more years of working and thinking at the end of this, I won't have anything at all. I won't have any money. I won't have any property. Every last thing I earn is going to go to Laban for the next seven years. And I'm still going to be at the bottom of the poverty line at the end of the next seven years. So everything he thought he was going to start to accomplish now is put off for seven years. Meanwhile, he starts having children, as we'll see. And that adds to the expenses of his household and probably made for some difficulties. Only at the end of these seven years does Jacob start to get things for himself and for his own household. Since it's most common to negotiate with the brothers, how come Jacob negotiates with Laban in this situation instead of with his brothers? That's a good question. And the answer is, practically speaking, I don't know why. And maybe the brothers are involved right along and attention isn't given to it. In terms of the theology of the passage, though, it's that Laban is another Isaac. And so Jacob has to deal with Laban, who's out to cheat him, just as he had to deal with Isaac, who was out to cheat him. And just as Rebecca had to help him deal with Isaac when Isaac tried to cheat him, so Rachel is going to help him deal with Laban when Laban tries to cheat him at the end when Laban comes out after him and wants to take care of him. So those are the parallels and I think that that's why the text tells us that he's dealing with Laban right along instead of with one of Laban's sons which practically speaking and if you actually had a video camera and were there you'd probably see him dealing with the sons more and only occasionally with Laban the father. But can't know for sure but I think in terms of the way the passage is set up is that Laban is another Isaac. He's another oppressive father who's out cheating. Just want to make sure you understand, in case anybody didn't going in, the marriage to Rachel takes place seven days after the marriage to Leah. And then he has to work seven years afterwards. That's real clear from the way the children are born and also from the statement here. Finally, he came into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah. The next verse, verse 31, Now when Yahweh saw Leah was hated, but you got to understand hate means love less or disdain. It can mean also just plain flat out hate. But it's a word that has a wide flexibility of meaning and it's in this passage it doesn't mean he didn't love Leah at all. But she's definitely second class. And as the older sister, she's definitely being put behind Rachel. In terms of switching firstborn and secondborn, Rachel is treated as the queen of the sheikdom, whatever you would call her, the Rani, and Leah is the second class wife, even though she's older and was married first. So there is a switching that takes place, and Rachel is preferred, her children are preferred. Well, I'll make a couple of comments, and then I don't think we'll get done with all of this. 
First of all, did Jacob commit the sin of polygamy? Genesis 2.24 says a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. You can't cleave to two wives. Leviticus 18.18 is very specific and refers quite obviously back to this passage. I'll read it. Leviticus 18.18 A woman along with her sister you are not to take in marriage, producing rivalry, exposing her nakedness in addition to her during her lifetime. So you can marry a sister if her sister dies. If you're married to a woman and she dies, you can marry your sister. But during her lifetime... You can't marry two sisters. It produces rivalry, which of course is what we're going to see. And it says exposing nakedness, that is, it exposes her to shame. Well, any polygamy exposes a woman to shame. And if a man takes a second wife, he's letting the entire world know that his first wife is unsatisfactory to him. And so, there's no situation in which polygamy or bigamy doesn't involve exposing the wife of your youth to shame. And so it's forbidden. It's not just marrying two sisters that's forbidden. It's any polygamy or bigamy that's forbidden. It's one of the things adultery always does. If a woman winds up in bed with another man, she's letting everybody know that her husband's not good enough for her. And vice versa. At whatever level, you can't do that. Among the other things that's wrong with it, that's one of them. Well, is that what happened here? Well, no, that's not what happened here because I think we have to understand that in terms of a contract, Jacob is married to Rachel. When he says, give me my wife, that's Rachel by contract. And simply the fact that he slept with Leah doesn't break that contract. Now he's just stuck with two wives. By contract, he's married to Rachel. By sexuality, he's married to Leah. Now he has responsibility for her. The passage does not raise this as an issue, but of course we think about it. And uh, people raise this question, well, maybe what Jacob should have said is, well, in the providence of God, I've been given Leah as a wife. Too bad, Rachel. Polygamy is wrong. I can't marry you. I'm not sure he could have said that. Hey, I don't think Laban would have let him get by with it. Laban wants to get rid of both of them. They're just eating him out of house and home. And he'd just as soon be rid of them. That's what you want to do in the ancient world anyway. You want to get rid of your daughters. Marry them off. And keep your sons around because they can work on the farm. And marry your daughters off to a rich guy so that he gives not only money to the daughter but also presents to you. And Laban is just wanting to get rid of these girls here. But second of all, I think that legally speaking, Jacob is married to Rachel. So I don't think that there's any problem here morally or in terms of the law of God. There are problem passages connected with polygamy in the Bible, but I don't think this is one of them. I was going to say some things about alcohol. Maybe I should just do it now and end on that note. Because of our society, because there's so much drunkenness in the United States 150 years ago, we inherit views on alcohol that are just not those of the Bible. And even Christians who drink will say, well, it's okay to have a glass of wine or a beer, but it's always wrong to get drunk. Well, that's not quite what the Bible says either, and that's why we have to look at it here. The Bible doesn't forbid getting high, relaxed, or happy on alcohol or getting drunk, as some would say. Some people's definition of drunkenness is if you are having a real good time and you're real relaxed. 
It forbids being a drunkard. That is, having a life of this. Treating alcohol as a substitute for life, getting drunk routinely, getting totally smashed and conking out drunk. That kind of thing is forbidden, and especially being a drunkard. But the occasional use of alcohol, even to the level of what we think of as party high, is not something the Bible forbids. It's not something you should do every day, but it's associated with feasting. You have to remember that getting totally smashed was the only anesthetic available in the pre-modern world. We have nice drugs and things now, but if you had to amputate somebody's leg or do surgery on them, you wanted to just get them knocked out drunk. Otherwise, they'd be screaming and twitching and you have to hold them down and everything else. Not to speak of the fact that they'd feel the knife. Proverbs 31 verse 6 also says, Give wine to him that is in misery and depression and having a terrible life. They may drink and forget his troubles. So even there you've got a recommendation that seems to be from the Holy Spirit that there are times, not every day, not day after day, not as a lifestyle, but at times when somebody is having a horrible life, something horrible has happened, and it's appropriate God has made this as something that you can use to help you get through those really horrible times. And we would tend to say, no, you should just pray your way through it, but the Bible seems to say, well, that's important, but there's also a use for letting somebody drink and go to sleep. Now, the Bible warns against the dangers of drinking around untrustworthy people. And the Proverbs starts this way when it says, you know, when you're around a king or somebody else, be careful what you eat. Don't drink too much. In the case of Noah and Lot, possibly they had no reason to think they were around untrustworthy people. Noah has some wine. He gets sleepy, takes his clothes off because he's hot. No problem there. Just resting. But Ham comes in. Lot drinks too much. But then if you apply Proverbs 31... <laughs> He's just lost his wife and everything. Maybe it's okay in that circumstance to drink and go to sleep and just try to put it out of your mind for a while and get back to life later on. But his daughters take advantage of him. Both of those stories are somewhat in the... Well, they are in the background here. They've already happened in Genesis. To some extent, I think they inform this situation. Jacob has had enough to drink to where he's let his guard down. And I guess he thinks that he doesn't need to keep his guard up that everything is taken care of. Just as Noah didn't anticipate that one of his sons would ridicule him, and Lot didn't anticipate that his daughters would actually try to sleep with him and actually do it, apparently Jacob doesn't anticipate that Laban is going to do anything as wild as this. But he does. And so there's a warning here. you got to be careful. I think Laban's deception makes him somewhat like Ham. Leah's deception makes her somewhat like Lot's daughters. These are parallels back to bad situations where a person was taken advantage of when he was celebrating. And as far as all the ins and outs of when you should drink and how much you should drink and all that kind of stuff, that's not what I'm here to talk about. And obviously people have to be satisfied in their own minds and in terms of their own culture and everything else. But in terms of the Bible, festive drinking to where you're happy and having a good time and you go to sleep and you sleep a long time, that's not a problem unless it becomes a habit. And that's the situation here. It becomes a problem if somebody takes advantage of you. And Lot was innocent in that situation. Noah was innocent and Jacob is innocent. But how innocent is something we'll have to take up next week. 
when we discuss how this passage relates to the others that are similar to it in the context. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.